Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. A presentation of Ex Libris Publishing, host Steve Jorgensen connects with a writer to share the vision and inspiration behind their works. Insightful, informative, and always entertaining, please welcome host Steve Jorgensen and this week's edition of Ex Libris On Air. The title of the book, Quenched, and the author is Cassie Dixon, and Cassie joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, Cassie. Hello, Steve. Great to have you with us. It's great to have a high school graduate not that long ago graduating, I guess this past summer. Is that when you graduated in the spring? Yes, yes sir. Well, gr- congratulations on writing your first novel and this one. With all the interest, especially in the younger generation, uh, with the supernatural world of vampires and werewolves, uh, it just seemed to be the thing to do. Was there a a kind of genesis of this idea? Um, I guess there was. I mean, I've been sick for the past three and a half years with chronic headaches and migraines, and I just started writing you know, to have something to look forward to every day, keep things bright and lively. And Quench was just, I like to call it a burst of inspiration. It just happened, and I just went with it. And that's basically how it came to be. So you've got seven teenagers, and they're trying to survive being trapped in a ghost town. But this ghost town has a a real unusual side to it, this supernatural side to it. Yes, it does. Of course, we all think there are, must be a ghost in a ghost town, but here we've got vampires and werewolves. We've also got some interesting characters that well, that you've created. Tell us about these uh, unique creations of your own. Um, well, there's Jocelyn, and her nickname is, is Jack, and then there's Hero and Cynthia... And then there's a teacher, and there's a three bullies named Tank, Bazooka, and Shotgun. And then there's a nerd named Danzig, and they, they're just all very colorful characters that kind of, they just come together real well. And here you also have created Luciferians and Gabrielians, which, uh, tell us a little bit about them. Well, Luciferians, they're basically my take on vampires. And the difference about them from the vampires you're used to seeing is that sunlight is good for them. It, it, it keeps them healthy. And blood is good for them, but they don't like to drink it. And so instead, they devour the whole body, and they leave as much blood as possible behind. And with the werewolves, it's like in most movies and books and shows and everything, they are werewolves because... It's handed down to them through their family. But unlike most shows and movies, is they've lost the ability to transform into an actual werewolf because their ancestors wanted to blend so much into the humans that they stopped transforming and they forgot how to. So that those are my little twists I put on it. And these Gabrielians, are they the good guys? Um, in, in general, I guess... 
kind of. It's, everyone has their own reason for doing what they do, and that's kind of how the Gabralians are. And basically what they are is they are people who drank holy water, and the water chose them as, I guess, vessels. And so basically a Gabrielian can't die or be injured by anything other than a Luciferian. So... So you have uh, these interesting supernatural characters dealing with these seven teenagers who are trying to, uh, well, what are, what are they trying to do? What is the main purpose of, of them being in this ghost town? Well, it starts out, you meet all the characters, of course, and they go to school, and there's a strange teacher at their school named Mr. Egan. And they don't know it, but they were lured to the town, and they got trapped there for a reason. And so, basically, they can't leave until they do something, and that something is to kill the Luciferian. That, cause that, that town is Luciferian's territory, so they have to kill the Luciferian and use its blood to leave. And so they, they were trapped there, and that's the only way they can leave. Now, Jack... One of the main characters, Jack dreams. Uh, why does he dream? What, what are these dreams about? Um, these dreams are basically nightmares that she's been having since her mother disappeared uh, sometime in the April. In, in April. And um, she has them. I actually can't. It's explained in the next book because there's, there's four books in the series. But... They're kind of, they're messages, in a way, from someone. And uh, she has them because of this person. They're kind of uh, making her suffer for some reason. And like I said, you don't really find out until the next book, but that's, that's why she has them. That's, that's Jocelyn. She's having these dreams. Yes. Her nickname is Jack. I know it's strange. Oh, her nickname <laughs> is Jack. I got it. Okay. Yes. Almost uh, right every now, character has a nickname. I think it's important to point out, you've mentioned it, that this is a series. Uh, how many books in this series? There's four books. That's a pretty big challenge for a young lady who just graduated from high school. <laughs> but congratulations. Thank you. So this series is going to help us... Uh, run the course, I guess, of what happens to these seven. Uh, of course, this ghost town, uh, it's a pretty creepy place, and as soon as the mines dried up and the people gradually disappeared, uh, leaving the town empty, this ghost town becomes the perfect setting for this thriller. Tell us about this yes. battle between the Luciferians and the Gabrielians, uh, Obviously, good versus evil. Okay, so it's, it's hard to explain, but basically the Luciferians, they are the way they are because it's basically kind of like a disease that slowly kills them. And they're just trying to survive, which is why they pick these, these towns, because the stragglers can come in and they can do whatever they want, you know, eat them or whatever. And uh, the Gabralians, since Luciferians are the only thing that can kill them, the Gabrielians do their best to try and eliminate the entire Luciferian race. That's basically their ultimate goal. And the Luciferians are just trying to survive and, and do what they do. So the, Lufer, the Luciferians uh, would like to make 
their next meal out of these seven teenagers, it sounds like, or these, and <laughs> that would that would greatly help them. Oh, yes. Yes, it would. So it is a battle for survival. Yes. So each book is going to take us on uh, another great challenge, another journey with these folks uh, in this battle. Yes, it will. And each book takes place at a different realm where the Luciferian, where another Luciferian is residing. Well, is there any particular message you're trying to get across through your books? N- not really. I mean, besides, you know, the traditional just friendship and teamwork, and, but mostly it's, it's just a really good story that I wanted to share with people. Well, Cassie, why don't you tell us how to get your book quenched? The author is Cassie Dixon. Well, you can go to Barnes & Noble online, Barnes & Noble, or com or Amazon. It's selling at all three places. Well, thank you so much, Cassie, for being with us on Ex Libris On Air. Thank you, Steve. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana, through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage, connectwithjulianainmedia.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune in to Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Two Ticket Ride, and the authors, Mike and Bernie Swigart. And Bernie joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, Bernie. Hi, Steve. How are you doing? Great to have you with us. Two Ticket Ride, you call it an action drama about Jake, the main character, retired Special Forces Sergeant 
major and a decorated war hero. Of course, like many who come out of the war, they're haunted by combat missions gone wrong and ghosts from his childhood. Uh, he's got a life of a continued adventure that questions his purpose, challenges his sanity, and in the end, in the end reveals his true character. So it's got many facets to this plot, many layers and you and your brother, uh, this was just kind of normal fare, huh? You just have been doing this all your life, making up stories. Yeah, actually, in your synopsis, that's a pretty good uh, overall of what the story is. But yeah, Mike and I grew up in Ohio uh, with our sisters, and we didn't have a lot going for us, uh, like a lot of people back growing up in the fifties and sixties. Uh, you know, we we were in a poor, pretty much dysfunctional family. Uh, our mom held it together. Dad had uh, issues. I'll I'll put it that way. Uh, alcohol issues. Uh, but one of the things that Mike and I were able to do is at nighttime we would uh, lay in our bunk beds and we would tell stories back and forth to try and you know the adventures and misadventures that we were going to have and we would embellish a lot of things trying to figure out how we were going to get out of that lifestyle. Uh, and then as we grew up, of course, we went different directions. Mike had his career and his family, and I went a totally different direction. Uh, Mike eventually got into the mortgage finance the finance business. I had a career in the military and then working with industry, and now I'm currently with foreign service with the State Department. Uh, but when Mike and I got back together after being apart for so many years, uh, with the technology and the communications and so forth, and with the life lessons learned, and we started reminiscing about our childhood and started dealing with a lot of issues, and we decided with the lessons learned and our own personal experiences and our life experiences that we would, we had something that we wanted to share. So we put this together in the book about Jake drawing on a lot of our personal experiences, although it is fiction, but, uh, but this gave us an opportunity to work together again. Uh, thank goodness for the technology and the communication that let us do that. But it, and, and it lets us, uh, again, tell the story of Jake and how he overcame so much and bring attention to a lot of what the uh, veterans uh, are dealing with, have dealt with in the past that are still dealing with uh, through Jake. So we've got Jake, and then we've got his, well, the love of his life for 20 year, 28 years, Evelyn. They, they just seem to be the perfect couple. Yeah, you would think so. They uh, grew up together. They were both from a carnival background. They were both uh, car carny families. They fell in love on the carnival lot. Uh, Jake hated the carnival business. He wanted to get out of it. And so he and Evelyn, idealistic and young and romantic in love, uh, they run off together and started. They and got married and started a life together. And going into the Army was Jake's way of, uh, of getting out of the carnival business. But... You know, now, but then the story, it's, it's not only what he encountered on the carnival lot, what he encountered coming of age with Evelyn, the love of his life, uh, but it also gets into the, some ill-fated combat missions, uh, gets into the horror and futility of war. But now, 28 years later, retired Sergeant Major, you know, he's strong still, he's proud, uh, he, he is a doer. He makes things happen. He's everywhere doing everything. Now he is retired. The economy isn't the way that it should be. Uh, he is no longer anywhere. He's doing nothing. 
and he's trying to understand why things haven't worked out the way he wanted them to. Of course, he's got an insufficient pension, like uh, like all military retirees. And uh, Evelyn's, Evelyn wants him to go back into the carnival business, uh, take over the family business that her family's still in. He's, he's opposed to it, and so he's trying to figure out where he fits in, how he fits in, uh, and the stresses of the economy and being either underemployed or unemployed, uh, the stresses start bringing back the memories of his childhood and a very brutal childhood, a uh, rough childhood, maybe is a better term, and uh, and starts bringing back uh, the combat missions that didn't go right and other stresses. And so then he has a lot of personal demons that he's dealing with, and uh, and this actually reflects a lot of what the current veterans of what the folks deal with when they come back. You know, you cannot retire. You cannot be a combat veteran and figure, okay, I'm going to come back and life is going to be normal. You get out of the military, whether your career or whether you spend a, a one or two tours. You come back and you have to establish a new normal because it's, you're not the same. Nobody gets out of war and faith. And being a combat veteran, I, I feel qualified to say that. Uh, and this is what Jake and so many other people are dealing with. That was, that was another thing, Steve, was one of the inspirations is that, uh, you know, seeing growing up in the 50s and 60s, being in Vietnam and seeing the veterans coming back and what they dealt with, and now the veterans coming back from uh, Desert Storm, Operation Iraqi Freedom and Enduring Freedom and the, the War on Terror, uh, they're treated with respect, and this is wonderful because this is the respect that they deserve. These are men and women who have made tremendous sacrifices. But now they're acknowledging that in addition to the physical wounds, there are over 400,000 service members who live with what's now referred to as the invisible wounds, which are the combat-related stresses and the depression and the post-traumatic stress disorders. And this is what uh, Jake is dealing with, and this is, again we have almost half a million service members today dealing with this, and this is one of the things Mike and I wanted to do is bring attention to this to try and show what was happening internally with Jake and how what he had to go through to try and deal with this, uh, to try and figure out where he fit in, if he fit in, to try and figure out why he was making the wrong decisions and, and what was really important to him and how he was going to define himself again. So he's trying to make sense out of his life, but in the process, as you put it, he just falls off the edge of rational thought. Uh, he meets Sandy. Well, he thinks he needs Sandy. Uh, I think that he thought that he had escaped from what haunted him in the past, which was his rough childhood. And now he, in addition to that, that has not only surfaced, but now the hauntings of the ill-fated combat missions have surfaced. Uh, he's got a, a brother who loves him and wants to help him. He's got a wife who loves him and wants to help him. Neither one of them know, quite know how to help him. And I, I think that he believes that he can outrun his problems, uh, escape from his problems. But as, as we know, you have to confront your past. You cannot outrun your past. You can't repress it. You can't pretend it didn't happen. You have to confront it. And this is the realization that Jake's going to have to face, except that in the process... Sandy, uh, who, who he befriends, uh, he, he and Sandy uh, develop a relationship, and so he and Sandy think that their lives would be better if they ran away from their problems. 
Uh, so, so the story, again, there's a lot of facets to the story, and the characters, the, the readers, you know, as the story unfolds, the characters and the readers face with modern-day contemporary issues, the faces with issues of infidelity and fractured family values and the career inadequacies, and it deals with forgiveness and maybe even more important, not the forgiveness of those who love us, but the forgiveness forgiveness of ourselves. But, uh, yeah, Sandy uh, Sandy got his attention, and uh, Jake thinks that this is uh, a way out of his problems, but, uh, you know, as the story unfolds and he and Sandy take off on a, a drive uh, across the country, across several states, uh, ahead of, thinking he's ahead of his problems, uh, thinking that they're outrunning the law, and, uh, and he finds out that uh, as the story unfolds that you have to confront your problems, you can't outrun them. And she's trying to get away from an abusive husband. She's trying to get away from an abusive husband, and you know, and she thinks that uh, Jake, of course, Jake is, uh, has a sense of humor, and, and that's one of the things This may sound like very dramatic material, but Jake uses humor throughout the book. That's one of the ways that he deals with life is humor. And, uh, and there is humor in the book. There's a romance in the book, uh, obviously the action adventure, because there are very direct, serious combat scenes. Uh, and, you know, of course, she thinks that she's in love with him. She has her own issues with the story will tell about. And she thinks that, uh, yeah, he's, he's the catch that's uh, going to take her away from her problems, and together that they're, they're going to be able to outrun both of their problems. So it is, it is reality in a sense, like you've already mentioned, about dealing with demons in our lives, wherever they may come from, from our own dysfunctional family experiences or from military experiences, from life experiences. We've just got to face them somehow, and does Jake finally face them? Well, is the... Is the the story gets dramatic toward the end. The action picks up, and eventually Jake's going to have to confront. He's going to have to come to the realization that that his past, you know, his past does not define him. However, we're, we're the result of everything that we experience and all the roads that we took to get where we are now, and we can't pretend like that is not what formed us. You know, one a lot of one of the things that we wanted to do. A lot, a lot of stories will just plop the characters into the scenario without giving any indication of what the background was or how they got the way that they were. And I, and Mike and I decided that in order for the readers to understand what Jake was dealing with, uh, and, and now, uh, his demons, they would have to understand what he went through to develop these memories. And so that's why we have memories in it, flashbacks, if you will, and, uh, to let the reader understand his, his family and his childhood and, uh, and what he had experienced in life. And now as a retiree and trying to put it all together, trying to figure out what is his worth, what, what, you know, what, what's it all about now at this point, uh, since he does no, not fit in either place, doesn't fit in in civilian life, uh, he's out of the military, doesn't fit in into the carnival life. Uh, but, but that's one of the things that, it, that we did is we wanted to give the backstory so that the reader understands that, yes, this is real world, this is something that people have to confront, is, again, the demons of their past or, or their, their childhood. You know, one, one thing that's interesting, uh, maybe one of the lessons, you know, what we say to our kids, what we experience, you know, it, it does matter. What our parents say to us, it does matter. Uh, Sixty years later, 70 years later, people are still dealing with it. 
uh, hopefully, eventually, they're able to confront uh, their childhood or confront their combat, their military experience, or confront stresses in the relationship. But, but yeah, that's a, a big part of the story is to show how the character Jake, uh, what he does to be able to deal with all of this, as opposed to, again, because uh, this is the only way that he's going to understand where he is and, and get the best out of it. You know, the name of the book, again, is Two Ticket Ride, and I want to explain also the title, because in the carnival business, uh, as you may recall, when you were young and going to the carnival, most rides took a ticket. And But there were the major rides, and the major rides were actually took two tickets to ride. And Mike and I did grow up in a carnival uh, background, carnival environment, and we used to joke around about that. And so as part of the story, when Jake and Evelyn Young and Romantic run off and Jake's trying to convince her that this is the right thing to do, he tells her uh, that, you know, something to the effect of, of, of stick with me and, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to make sure that life, life for you, life with me is going to be a two-ticket ride. And uh, so that's where the title came from is that he, his entire life, he approaches life as a as if it's a two ticket ride until he finally until he finally has to confront everything. This must have been quite a challenge for you as you wrote this. To, must have brought to the surface maybe some issues that you've been challenged by throughout your life. Well, there there, there were a few challenges with it. Uh, one of the things that was actually uh, interesting uh, for. Mike and I, is once we started communicating again, uh, because, of course, we were in different states and actually in different countries most of our adult life. Uh, but, uh, and when we started working on this, it actually uh, forced Mike and I to sit down and discuss a lot of things and reassess and actually confront things that he and I had repressed for years and discuss a lot of things about uh, how you deal with poverty, how you deal with dysfunctional families, how we were able to... Uh, pull ourselves out of that kind of environment and, you know, relatively successful. And uh, so that was one of the challenges is reliving a lot of our childhood as we were working on this. Uh, another one of the challenges, of course, was the distance and the time, uh, you know, but again, communication is tremendous these days. And, you know, another one of the challenges was to figure out how much of the past, because it is a present story. It starts out in the present is to deal with how much of the past we wanted to put in uh, to, to help the readers to understand the backstory. So there were there were definitely challenges in this, but you know, but we're, we're confident that we have uh, that we have a book here that the readers are going to walk away with it, you know, with, with a sense of uh, of feeling better about dealing with their own past and uh, and having a better understanding, of course, of what the, the veterans, what the combat veterans, our warriors, uh, deal with on a daily basis. We've been listening to Bernie Swigert. He is the co-author with his brother Mike for the book Two Ticket Ride. You'll see their pen name on the cover, Swigert Brothers. Bernie, tell us how to get your book. Well, the books are available on Barnes & Noble, Amazon.com, Books A Million. Uh, the book is not yet in the bookstores, but uh, if you go on the major, on the website with the major uh, to order the books through the Internet, um, you'll find it there. You can find it either under Two Ticket Ride or you can find it under Swigert Brothers. Thank you so much, Bernie, for being with us on Ex Libris On Air. Well, thank you, Steve. Appreciate it. 
Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled Bert, General MacArthur, and GHQ. A story of a teenage boy from Iowa and his experiences and happenings during World War II. The author and our guest is Burton L. Showers. Welcome, Bert. Thank you very much. Delighted to talk with you and visit with you. In looking over your book, you have 300 pages of uh, your experience during World War II, which uh, in itself is is amazing. Uh, you were motivated to write this book initially by a sister. Yes. What, uh, what caused you to continue with this motivation and get this accomplished? Well, it, it ended up uh, as something very personal. Uh, not everybody can say they were in General MacArthur's headquarters during the war. And I, I started out in the combat engineers just as a snot-nosed 18-year-old kid, just fresh out of high school. And so I went overseas. Uh, I took basic training in Camp Abbott, Oregon, in the mountains. And you'll never believe this, but I was stupid enough to actually enjoy basic training. Oh, I loved the adventure. And it was fun, and it was a challenge. And I often say it turned me from a boy into a man. And and so then I went overseas as a combat engineer, positively dreading uh, all of the combat in the Pacific area, and especially Guadalcanal and the Buna campaign in the in New Guinea. And uh, I came very very close to. It. And you know, combat engineer's life is very dismal because you're out there in the front. And you got to do everything that nobody else wants to do, and and uh, but somebody has to do it, and somebody has to put the bridge together so the troops can get across the river and stuff like that, you know, and and uh, so that's how I, I ended up. It's it's a story really of my life, and when I came home from the war and I started, I, I didn't talk much. I don't think many of us veterans have talked very much, but uh, uh, in in fact, some of my former students who bought the book say to me, they said, my golly, we didn't realize you were so involved during the war. I said, well, I didn't tell you. I said, because I thought, first of all, you wouldn't believe me anyway, because kids aren't, kids don't believe their teachers very much, you know, and that's 50 years ago. But, uh, so as time went along, my sister kept saying, now, you got to get your stories down in print so the family has them. Well, I put it off and put it off, and so then a few years later, I started it, and we became part of the computer age, and I was working on, I, I started, I got started, 
and I'm computer stupid, and, and I hit the wrong button, and I lost 20, 30 pages. Mm. And I thought, oh, hell, and to hell with the whole thing. And so I did. I, I didn't touch it for a year. Well, that upset my sister, and she's she was eight years older than I, and I'm the baby of the family. And, and uh, my brother was in Saipan, and he became the head uh, signal corps man in, in the Saipan during the rest of the war. And so then I was with, I got assigned to General MacArthur. I was, just got that lucky break. I was in New Guinea in that big replacement depot. And one day I got my orders to fly to the next morning. I fly to Brisbane, Australia to join GHQ. I didn't know, I was, I was dumb and ignorant at that time. I didn't know Army language. And so I, I went to the, uh, tent where the secretary of the, you know, the, uh, of the company was, and I said, what does all this mean? He said, well, you're flying to General MacArthur's headquarters tomorrow morning at 5 o'clock. And so I was I was ready. I was on that airplane, and I got on that airplane, and I looked around, I saw so many stars and, and uh, eagles on, on these guys' shoulders that I thought, my, I must be flying with some people who have some rank. And sure enough, then when I found out, I was flying down to Australia to join the headquarters. Well, Long story short, I was with General MacArthur. I got assigned. I was lucky in my interview with Major Port, who did all the assigning then to all the new recruits coming into the general headquarters. He found out my background, and I'd had so much mechanical drawing in high school, and and before I even graduated, I was I was working in a defense plant as a draftsman. So that gave me a skilled spec number. And that skilled spec number really pulled me out of the combat engineers and put me in the headquarters in the in G3 map making. And probably and it, saved your life, too. It saved my life. It really did. And so I was, then was with General MacArthur till the end of the war up in Tokyo. Which, and I had some just some fabulous experiences. Just fabulous. <laughs> so anyway, after I wrecked my touch the wrong button on the computer, I lost all those pages. I was so irritated with myself because, as I said, I'm not a computer person. I'm self-taught, but I, at least I know how to turn on the machine and turn it off. But I touched something wrong, and I lost 20, 30 pages. And I said, to hell with it. And so I didn't touch the thing for at least a year. Then my sister started getting upset because we're all getting older, and it's 30, 40, 50 years after the war. And, and uh, you know, during the war, I, it was illegal for me to have any type of notes or diary or anything like that while I was in G3, because for fear of the information falling in the hands of the Japanese. And so you followed that rule, and no ifs and ends about it. It's not like these clowns today stealing all of our secrets and stuff. And you just follow the rules. You don't make copies of things because it's private. It's, it's government material, first of all. And so finally then... I weakened. My sister got to me as the year, and I've been teaching for a few years, quite a few years. And I too, I decided, yes, if I'm ever going to do it, I'd better get my butt in gear and do it. And so what I did, I decided I'm going to start all over, throw everything away from the original story I had, and start again. And you know, it was the smartest thing I did because it gave me a fresh insight into the thing. Now you got to keep in mind. I did not have any notes or diary from my experiences in the war, uh, except during combat engineer basic. Uh, everything in the headquarters was ultra, ultra top secret. We weren't even allowed to speak about it or talk about it. When we'd go to bed at night, we'd lie there and giggling and laughing you know, with each other. And But we were not 
really ethically, we were not allowed to talk about what we did during the day and working on the various uh, uh, maps and things like that because they were all so top secret. And so that's that's how it worked out. Well, then as the time went on, I really got on the ball, and and the the book really started coming together. And then I got excited, and it was just great. Well, then in the meantime, two three years ago, my sister died, and so I was on the project by myself. And the more I got involved in it, the more proud I got of it, and I decided, hey, this is kind of a nice book. And so, in fact, I reread it even now. And unfortunately, uh, Ex Libris or whoever it was left a couple incidences out, which I wish were in. But uh, but I'm on the second printing, so I'm I'm uh, pretty happy about the whole thing. Oh, that's amazing! But that's how I got started in writing the book. My sister did the, the pressure. She was eight years older than I, and all my life she was she kind of looked after my brother and me, even though we were old enough that we could do it ourselves. She was still the the matriarch of the family. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And you have yeah. an amazing memory for detail uh, looking and at your it's, book. It's utterly amazing. It, it's uh, And people who have read my book told me they, they just can't get over how I, I have such memory. And, and, and as I say, I did not have, I do not have, even to this day, I do not have any notes from the from my wartime experiences. But you just... Too personal. But you did have some beautiful photos and other memorabilia that's included in the book. Yes, I did. And uh, unfortunately, Ex Libris wouldn't let me print all of it because, <laughs> this is interesting, you'll get a kick out of this. They said, well, you know, that could cause a lawsuit. I said, wait a minute, how? They said, well, somebody <laughs> who is in your headquarters might claim that picture is theirs. I said, wait a minute, everybody's dead but me. I said, so not many people can claim it. I'm the only one alive. I said, even Jeremiah Carter's dead. And and I said, so all of this stuff is mine. Well, they, they gave in. And so I got some, uh, they let me have some nice pictures, like a nice picture of Tokyo, a nice picture of the whole uh, bit of the Pacific Islands where we invaded and things like that. So that was very personal to me. And my office, G3 Drafting, made a lot of the, well, we made the, the, the map design for my book, of course, nobody knew 50, 60 years later that we were going to be doing this, and that I was going to be writing a book. And and uh, but it's it's been a great experience. I really have I've had a lot of fun with it. Well, so happy they allowed you to put in the uh, sketches and the uh, drafting pages. Yes, that were there. They, well, they recanted, and then they they realized that took me about a, a telephone call of about two hours one night, and I kept convincing him, convincing him. I said, but you got to keep him. You see, it's a different. You and I are different generations. I'm 88, and I imagine you're in your 20s or 30s. Well, I, I wish. What? I wish I was. Oh, you're younger <laughs> or older? Yes, I am. Which? I don't admit to my age. Oh, I can, there's I keep nothing it wrong with that. Uh, I'm 88. I'm very proud of it. Well, I, I'm proud I of you as well. I make 100, and all my doctors are working with me, even though I have nine stents in my heart right now. Oh, my. <laughs> and I've had about four or five heart attacks. I still am slowly trying to slow down trying to slow down that's impossible for me a guy who went through the war actually enjoyed it and you, you got to be nuts you know to do that well, but yeah. i did i can i can hear the energy in your voice so that's fabulous how did you continue this book and and how did you uh complete it were there any challenging parts about putting it together well, the challenging part mainly was, was the memory of things, because uh, Ex Libris got to me, and, and the various people who were working with me at times, 
really convinced me, be careful when you use names. So you'll, you'll notice I did use some names, but I was very careful in how I used them. And uh, because I, I'm smart enough to know I don't want a libel lawsuit or anything like that. And uh, <clears throat> but as I say, all of those guys have died off now. They're they're I'm the last one uh, alive. Colonel R. Uh, unfortunately, his plane went down on the way home. Mm. And here after, after he had been in the Battle of the Buna campaign and and all of that, and was was signed to GHQ for over three four years. And and it's interesting. Because I got acquainted with with all these colonels and generals, and I mean generals, two, three, four star generals, and and General MacArthur, and uh, I liked them. They were just great guys, and and uh, I, I learned one thing. Well, many years back, I learned keep your eyes and ears open and your mouth shut. Mm -hmm. and, and being in GHQ, especially in G three, where all of those maps and that top secret information was at my fingertips constantly. It was the smartest thing that I could learn, and I tried to tell and share this with all my the, the new draftsmen that would come into the department. And uh, it was it was very 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 top secret. It was you, you just never knew to whom you were talking. But I, as I say, I knew I knew uh, General Chamberlain was my immediate boss. He was Major General, and and I uh, knew knew General Kenny, and and you name it. I, I knew. The reason was because they had to get into G3, G3's plans and operations, and they had to get in there to get the permission from General MacArthur or things like that to have various things cleared. Even the top Air Force general had to have things cleared by General MacArthur. But that's, that's policy. That's, that's the way war goes. And here I am, a crazy little sergeant running around, and all of these off colonels and generals, and I did not have the rank, but they always kept calling me sergeant. <laughs> and I thought, okay, you bastards, keep calling me that. That's all right. It doesn't hurt my feelings. <laughs> but I thought, well, at least you could give me the rank that goes along with it, but they never did until the end of the war. <laughs> Bert, tell me, is there one thing you'd like readers to take away from this book? Well, a lot. I had great respect for my superiors. I, I knew the dividing line, and yet there wasn't a, a, a written book of you do this, you do this, you do this, you take a bath, and, and do this. There was just a tremendous code of ethics and conduct between the enlisted men and the officers in G3 and in G2, because ours were our two sections were such ultra top secret. But I, I, I would like the people to realize that that. Uh, not all war is battle of the bulge. Not all war is the is the European war. Now our war was terrible out there in the Pacific. Diseases, snakes, and scorpions, and everything like that. And the, the unseen enemy. At least you knew usually where the Germans were, you know. But but you didn't quite know where the Japanese were or the scorpions. <laughs> and so that was bad. So I, I would I would like to have the people have a of respect for me and those of us who served in the Pacific as it was it was no fun, especially if you were in New Guinea and the Philippines as I was. And on you know, it wasn't until just a couple of months ago that I realized, you know, I've been rereading my book because I, I enjoy it. It's it, I'm not braggadocious, but it's just I enjoy it. And I find that oh my goodness, here the famous slogan, I shall return, I left that out of the book. And I went with General MacArthur back into the invasion of the Philippines, October 20th, 1944. 
and I was with him, and here I forgot all about it. I was on a separate LST, taking, and I was ordered by General Chamberlain, you go up on the advanced restaurant, set up a G2, set up a map section, and your job is to take care of the maps for General MacArthur. Now, we referred to General MacArthur as the general. We never referred to him just plain MacArthur, you know, but it was the general. And everybody knew that we were talking about MacArthur. And so he said, now, your job, the general, General Chamberlain said, your job is to set up a map system for the general and take care of his daily operation reports and things like well, which I'd been doing for a full year in Australia. So it was a continuation. But, but my point I'm making is here I'd forgotten that I had, I had gone back into the Philippines on the invasion. MacArthur was on the Nashville. I was on an LST in a typhoon, scared my butt off. And, but it was a terrible experience, but I enjoyed it. Can you imagine such a imagine. thing? That's what you call insanity. Yes. But, but it, was, it was a good experience, and, and I got to see my... Off, uh, these officers were my friends. They really were lieutenant general. Now, that's three-star general. That's pretty high rank, but they were my friends. People today who look at my book and they see it and they say, well, how do you approach General MacArthur? What kind of a guy was he? I said, well, he was a great man. He was a wonderful person. And then they look at me and question as if I'm lying or something, and they say, well, did you like him? I said, yes, I did. Well, did you see him often? Every day. And and it's hard for people to realize that uh, we had that intimacy in, in the job, that it had to be done every day. And uh, it was part of the experience. I like responsibilities, and, and uh, that's why I became, later on in my private life, I became director of student activities of this big high school here and, and, uh, for 20, 30 years. And, and I like responsibilities, and I learned that when I was a kid, and they, they evidently caught on to it when I went into G3, because within the week, they, they asked me to take care of closing the G3 office every night at the end of the day. Well, that was, at the time, I thought I was being pissed on, and, you know, I was getting the shaft, and I wasn't at all. I was actually being honored mm -hmm. that, that they had enough responsibility in me that I could take it. So I had the job of checking the office every day before we went home to be sure that there was not one map out or any piece of paper that had any information on in case somebody broke in during the night. And our government spies would come in at night to check to see if we were putting these things away. And so I had a clean record on that. <laughs> but it was things like that that started me out at the very beginning, just after I joined the headquarters. One week later, the, the uh, head sergeant of the G3 drafting said to me, now we want you to close close the office at the end of the day, and that means you are responsible for anything that gets out. Ooh, well, that's pretty serious for an 18-year-old kid, you know? Absolutely. But I, but I took it seriously, and I, I enjoyed it. And, and so then the, the first thing in the morning, we'd come in, I'd be the person to unlock the joint, and I'd hurry make a fast check of everything, because you'd set up various little things to see the the spies were in at night and if they touched anything and I could tell within seconds that somebody had been in there and you know so it was up to me at the end of the day to get the top secret material uh, ditto masters things like that you think these gelatin rolls that you spread out and we would make copies we didn't have these fabulous printing things then as we do now and so we had to be sure that everything was put away because and especially in Australia and the Philippines and up in the combat areas you never knew who would get in that office and be able to steal something. Well, then it would be my butt. And so <laughs> you had to 
I, I took the responsibilities very seriously, and I liked it. And as a result, it put me in immediate contact with, like, General Kenny, the head of the Air Force out there in the Pacific, and, and my boss, General Chamberlain, and, and he and I were, were became the best of friends through those three years in Australia and New Guinea, all the way up to Tokyo. And it was very difficult when the two of us said goodbye to each other in, in uh, at the end of the war. And I mean, it was difficult here. I was a sergeant. He was a major major general. But we had a hard time saying goodbye to each because we liked each other. We respected each other so much th- through those years. Well, this is a fascinating story. And again, the title is Bert, General MacArthur, and GHQ. A story of a teenage boy from Iowa, his experiences and happenings during World War II. Thank you, Bert, for joining us today. Where can we get copies of your book? Well, for me, uh, it, it's actually easier for people who just send me a check for $30 for the hardcover or $20 for the soft cover, and uh, I can send it out to them. I've made a deal with the uh, uh, UPS here in Palatine, where I live, and, and so I, I have mail coming in and mail going out, and it's easier for me to take care of it that way. Uh, Barnes & Noble, they won't handle the book. They say everything is handled through their corporate office, and so they won't even touch my book. And so uh, I, I feel, all right, I can... I can peddle my own book, and, and I'm proud of it, the cover. I think it's yes, very Yes, the cover looks great. To share this with you, because years ago, when I was working on it, the Ex Libris just couldn't understand. Uh, they, they came up with a design for that cover to make it look like I was in the Battle of the Bulge. I was not in the Battle of the Bulge. I was a, a draftsman in a map-making thing, taking care of General MacArthur's and all the other generals and officers' maps. And, and I... It took me several hours one night to convince them I don't want a picture of a lot of combat troops on the cover. Instead, it's me, it is I, who is became part of that general headquarters, GHQ, which was MacArthur's headquarters, and I, be, and I became an important, an important person in it, not realizing at the time, but yet 60, 70 years later, I could shake my head and get the cobwebs loose a little bit and say, Oh, my goodness, I was more important than I realized Fabulous. as a snot-nosed teenager, you know? Fabulous. Well, yeah. if people do a search under Burton L. Showers, S-H-O-W-E-R-S, online, they can get some information on your book and keep contact with you in the future. Yes, they can. Thank you, Bert, for sharing your story. For Ex Libris On Air, this is J. Douglas Barker. Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here on Ex Libris On Air.